And let's open our Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 13 this morning. 2 Kings chapter number 13. What a blessing to be in the house of God with you today. All this and good food too. Somebody say amen to that. My wife was up early this morning cooking some black-eyed peas and some greens with some hog jowl in it and some cornbread. So can't nobody leave here and said they, they don't have a chance at some southern cooking. Amen. So we're we're excited about that. We're not looking for black-eyed peas to give us good luck. We believe in providence. Amen. But now I ain't going to turn away some black-eyed peas. Somebody say amen to that too. So Second uh, Kings chapter number 13. And let's begin reading in verse number 14. Second Kings chapter 13, verse number 14. The Word of God says, Now Elisha, now you know who Elisha is, the prophet of God. Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance. And the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek, till thou have consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be here in your house. Lord, what joy it gives my heart to get to gather with your people, to preach the word of God, to worship together with them, Lord, to enjoy a time of fellowship. Lord, we have much to be thankful for today, and we do want to praise you for your goodness upon our life. But we've also come to this moment, God, and it is an important moment. It's a moment where we're going to be challenged with the truth of the word of God. We can either view that, Lord, through uh, indifference and apathy, or we can take seriously these next few moments. Lord, I know you're up to the task of dealing with our hearts if we'll only take this moment seriously. So I pray that we would. I pray that we would open our hearts to you, and I pray that we would seek for you to do an everlasting work in our lives today. Lord, if there's any that are lost here today, I pray you'd show them that need in their life, and that only Christ can fill it, and only by coming to Christ, placing their faith in him, can they have forgiveness and peace and joy and uh, security, Lord. And I pray for those that may be backslidden, that you draw them back to yourself. Lord, I, I'm not asking you to strike them down. I'm asking you to lift them up, Lord. And I'm asking you to show them how much better it is to live for you than it is to live for self. Lord, as some that are discouraged, pray that you'd encourage them. Lord, whatever the need is, we know you're up for it. So we commit ourselves unto you today, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to take a few moments this morning and preach to you on a man by the name of Joash, who was the king of Israel. Now, I need to remind you that at this time in Israel's history, they are actually two kingdoms, two separate. We could use the word nations, but really it was almost two kingdoms of the same nation. They were certainly very close. Uh, they certainly at times throughout this uh, fractured uh, history, they were at war. At other times, they were at alliance with each other. But there are two distinct kingdoms here, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, there's a Joash that you probably know about. 
But that's not the Joash we're talking about this morning. Although he is mentioned in verse number 1, uh, in verse number 10 of this chapter, when it says in the 3 and 20th year, verse 1, of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. So there's a Joash that's king in Judah. You probably know about Joash. He's the one that his grandmother sought to slay all of the seed royal, including him. Uh, but a uh, woman brought him, stole him away, and hid him under the stewardship of a man by the name of Jehoiada, who was the high priest. And Jehoiada for seven years keeps this uh, little child under watch, under guard, concealed away, only to be revealed uh, to a close group of individuals. And then a plan is developed to put that child on the throne. Can I say, and this isn't my message this morning, but what a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who his true uh, known nature and identity the vast majority of the world did not know. But when he appeared the first time, he appeared to those that were willing to receive him, to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to those that would receive him, uh, he appeared unto them, uh, and he came and appeared. And then the plan of God for placing him upon the throne was disclosed, has been in this church age, disclosed to the world at large. There's coming a day whenever he's going to step out from those eastern skies and he's going to be seen in power and in glory and he's not coming back to be the meek Galilean. He's coming back to be the King of Kings, Lord of Lords that will ascend the throne. What a beautiful picture we have of the twofold aspect of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the Joash we're talking about this morning. He's mentioned in this chapter and there's another Joash, however, and this other Joash is the son of a man named Jehoahaz. Now, this Joash is not the king over Judah, the southern kingdom. He's the king over Israel, the northern kingdom. And uh, at one point, uh, the, the uh, man Joash that we're preaching about in our chapter, he's called Jehoash. And the reason is to differentiate him from the Joash that we're all familiar with. And then the rest of the chapter, it just calls him Joash. One of the things I'm going to do when I get to heaven, if any of these kings made it, is ask them, why did you name all of your children after the other kingdom's kings? Well, it, may, it makes studying my Bible a lot easier if they didn't pick up that nasty habit, wouldn't it? But we have to know which Joash that we're talking about. Joash, the king over Israel. Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, had a life that was marked by failure. When you read about his life, there's no glowing moments in it. If you read about the other Joash, of course, God uses him uh, to uh, spark a sort of revival in the kingdom. His life ends in disgrace as well. He winds up killing Zechariah the prophet. Uh, but, uh, you know, much of his life was, was illustrious and, and, and wonderful. But this Joash, up in Israel, this Joash, there's not really any good thing that we can say about him. He is, we would use the word a scoundrel to the tenth degree. His is a life that is marked by failure. To understand the tragedy of Joash's life of failure, we really have to go back to the beginning of the chapter. And I want to try to frame a little bit of, of why what happens in our text this morning is so significant. If you were to go back to his upbringing before he became the king of Israel, you'd find that there's four things, four important truths, that he had seen at work in the lives of others. Look at this with me. Go back to verse number 1. The Bible says in verse 1 of our chapter, in the 3 and 20th year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, now that's Joash's daddy, the Joash we're preaching about. Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. 
And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. So you can imagine young Joash and the home that he grew up in. What kind of things did he see in his formative years? I would say, number one this morning, he had seen the sinfulness of rebellion in the lives of others. Uh, Joash is not a man who was raised with a Bible uh, on his daddy's knee. He was not a man that was raised seeing his mother and his father pray and talk to the Lord, largely speaking. We'll say a word more about that in a moment. He was a man that had grown up and seen his father live wickedly uh, his entire childhood. I would note a couple things here, and I think they're important to notice. One, his father was a man that had been given a clean slate in his life. He said, Preacher, where do you see that? Well, do you notice it says in verse 1, it calls him Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu. Now, I don't know if you remember who Jehu is in the Old Testament, but Jehu is the general that God uses to wipe out the wicked lineage of Ahab, the king over Israel. You remember Ahab and Elijah, Naboth's vineyard, Jezebel and her prophets. Jehu was tasked with obliterating that line. When Jehu ascends the throne, he now has a choice. And we could say this, a new dynasty began with Jehoahaz's father. Now the sad truth is this, Jehu ascends the throne and he lives as wickedly as anybody did before him. But you know, everybody in our life, we all have the choice. None of us are determined by our DNA or our raising as to how we're going to live our life. He had been raised and he had seen his father who was had plenty enough time to turn around the testimony of Jehu. He had a clean slate, but we notice that sadly is not what he availed himself of. We see in verse 2 that he had a corrupt life. The Bible says he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now that's idolatry. It's calf worship in the Old Testament. They built a brazen altar of a calf or a golden altar of a calf in Dan and one in Beersheba. And they would go and worship there. And this became a problem. It became a plague to Israel. And, and Jehoahaz, even though he, just like you, just like me, has the opportunity to live right and do right, he instead does the wrong thing. Now imagine how this impacted Joash. As a young man, he had seen that the people that were important to him, that he looked up to, that he respect, lived wickedly. And he had seen how depraved your life could become if you lived in rebellion. Can I tell you this? You don't have to be a real scoundrel to wind up with a scoundrel's life. You just have to turn your back on the truth of the Word of God. You live in rebellion to the Lord and, and sin and the flesh and the world and the devil will take care of the rest. You'll do things you would have never thought you would have done. I see that he had learned firsthand the sinfulness of rebellion. Then look down at verse number 3. The Bible says this, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Remember, Joash is a young man. He's watching all of this happen. His father's on the throne, but he is observing it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. Look down in verse number 7. It says, that the uh, king of Samaria, neither did he, or Syria, neither did he leave of the people to Jehoahaz, but fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. Let me say not only number one has he seen the sinfulness of rebellion, but he's seen the sorrow of judgment as well. He's seen that he worships a holy God, or at least that Israel's God was a holy God. And he's seen that a holy God will not tolerate sin in the lives of his people. Can I tell you how much God hates sin? God hates sin so much that He'd send His Son to the cross of Calvary to die for sin, to deal with the sin problem in humanity. That's how much that God hates sin. How much would you have to hate something to give your Son to obliterate? 
How much would you have to hate? I mean, listen, I've had people in my life that in my in my infirmity, in my carnality, I've had a problem with, maybe got angry with, but but I couldn't even fathom hating someone so much that I'd take one of my boys and be willing to push them off a cliff if it meant that that person never had another smile in their life. But God hated sin. We talk about how much He loves us. Praise the Lord, He does. He does love us, but He also hates sin. Uh, He hates sin so much that He'd send His Son to die for it. And you know that Joash, he had seen firsthand what it looked like for the judgment of God to fall upon a nation. Number one, he'd seen divine judgment. He understood that a man could not live in rebellion to God without paying a price. And if you're a child of God this morning, if you know the Lord, your life does not belong to you. You can't live any way that you want and expect that your life will be free of sorrow and heartache and judgment. But not only that, he had seen devastating judgment. The Bible says down in verse 7 that the king of Syria, he, he left to the people of Jehoahaz but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. Now, if you study the uh, history of Israel, how vast and large their army had been at times, this is just a drop in the bucket relative to the army that had been there before. Can I say this? Hey, sin is destructive, but so is the judgment of God in the life of a believer. Uh, Why was it that God allowed Israel to be pared down so low? In fact, the Bible says that He had allowed Syria to diminish, to lessen Israel in their sight. Why had He done that? Not because He hated Israel, because He wanted Israel to turn to Him and look to Him and lean on Him. And in our lives, if we live in rebellion, God will take away whatever crutches we put in our life to get us to lean on Him once again. Now, Joash had seen this. He had seen what it looked like when the judgment of God fell. But then look at verse 4. The Bible says this in Jehoahaz, that's Joash's father, besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. I'm imagining this young man, Joash, And he's watching all these things happen. He's seen the wickedness of his father. He's seen the judgment of God fall upon the nation. But then he's seen his father break and turn to God and cry unto God and ask God for deliverance. Now, what is this going to mean to a young man like Joaz? What would a young person expect to see happen? I'll tell you what I would have probably expected then, maybe what I would expect now. If I had been God, I would have said, sorry, Jehoahaz. I'm not a spare tire you pull out when, when you got a flat. You, you love me, you want to serve me, then you go ahead and love me and serve me and I'll bless your life, but you ain't going to live in your way you want. And then just because you repent, ask forgiveness, me come running and save you. But you know, if I thought that God would act that way, I'd be wrong. Because here we find out that God does that very thing. I would say this, He had seen firsthand the sweetness of mercy. He had seen that God's a forgiving God, a loving God. He had seen that God desires the best for His people. He had seen that though a man messes up, though he shakes and breaks his life in in innumerable pieces, God in His mercy and grace will scoop those pieces back up and glue them back together with grace and make something beautiful once again. Man, what an amazing thing He had seen. He had seen, He had witnessed how that God sees. The Bible says in verse 4 that God saw the oppression of Israel. Not only did he hear the prayers of the king, but he saw. In other words, he learned this. God's watching Israel. He had learned that though they had angered God, though they had defied God, God had never took his eyes off the nation. He still loved them. He still cared about them. Not only that, he had seen 
witness firsthand how that God saves. The Bible says that God gave Israel a Savior. Now there's probably some debate about when exactly this was and who exactly this was. Some people claim that it's Jeroboam II in the next generation. I tend to believe that's not true. I think the Lord just doesn't tell us who this Savior is. But the Bible is abundantly clear that whether now or later God sent someone to deliver Israel from the mess that they got themselves in. Think about this for a young man, watching all of this happen and thinking, what a wonderful God we must have if He would turn our our way and, and forgive us and pardon us and take us back into His fellowship again. But then, sadly, the story doesn't end there. Look down at verse 6. What else do you see? One more thing and then we'll preach. The Bible says in verse 6, Nevertheless, they departed not. It's talking about the people. You remember verse 5 says the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin, but walked therein, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. What impact would this have on a young man? Here he's watching this very clearly defined process working out. I mean, he had seen this and read of this on several occasions throughout the book of Judges over 450 years. The children of Israel repeated this process over and over again. And surely he's watching this. The children of Israel walk in disobedience, walk in rebellion. God delivers them to an oppressing people, an oppressing force in their life. They repent. They call on God. They ask God to deliver them. God in His grace and mercy forgives them and pardons them and delivers them. And now Joash, as a young man, is probably thinking, well, this has set a new course for the nation. They now know that the God of Israel, Jehovah, He's the true God. And surely they're going to worship Him. And yet, he finds out that's not the case. In fact, the people do exactly what they had done every other time. They just go back to the same disobedience that they had been living in before. I'd say it this way. He had seen the subtleness of backsliding. He had seen that a people could be kissed by the grace and mercy of God, could be touched by the goodness of God, and know it and see it, and still choose to turn around and walk back into their sin if they willed to do so. He had seen it in the people of his homeland. He had seen them. Not only that, he had seen it in his parents. I think if we compare verse 4, that when the Bible says, Jehoahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, this is him repenting. And yet we're told back in verse number 2 about Jehoahaz that he followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel a sin. He departed not therefrom. In other words, even with his own daddy, he had seen him repent and cry out unto God, and God answer, and yet his father go back to the same wickedness. I want you to stop and think about it. Here's a young man, by the time we reach these later verses, he is a co-regent with his father. He's co-ruling. He's deciding what kind of kingdom his nation is going to be. And he is now faced with a choice. He has seen a full example of what happens when you disobey God and what happens when you turn to God. And now, much like you and I this morning, he has a choice he has to make. What is he going to do? Is he going to follow God fully? Or is he going to turn back and go his own direction? Joash had seen firsthand these important truths in the lives of others, but what about him? What would his choice be? Would he give his heart and life fully to the Lord? Well, we don't have to look very far to find out. Verse number 10 says this, In the thirty and seventh year of Joash king of Judah began Jehoash, remember it's the same one, but the Holy Ghost is, is kind enough to untangle their lineage there by calling him Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, to reign over Israel and Samaria and reign 16 years. Verse 11 says, And he did that which was evil 
in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, but he walked therein. I hate to tell you this, but the tragic uh, answer to this question is he made the wrong choice. He could have gone the right way, but instead he turned and went the wrong way. I have this question. How could Joash choose this path? Seeing, uh, seeing all that he's seen, knowing all that he knows, how could he choose to go that direction? How could he be so foolish? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. When you study Joash's life, there's only about two episodes that are really sort of what we call narrative in nature, where God sort of tells us the story of something happening. One has to do with a, with a conflict between him and, and the king of Judah regarding a, a military friction that they had with each other. But the other is our text this morning. We are given a deeply intimate window into the life of Joash, into his character, into his personality, into his flaws, and into his choices. I think when we read this passage about Joash being given the bow, the opportunity to shoot it, to determine how many times they're going to destroy their enemy, you might sit there and say, Preacher, that's so abstract and dry and dusty. Well, that's because Syrians ain't chasing you. Amen? If they're chasing you, it'd be pretty exciting. This literally, he was determining the destiny of the nation. And when he has the opportunity to shoot the quiver empty, to shoot every arrow in there, to go full bore all the way in his commitment to the Lord, here's what he does. The Bible says he smote the ground thrice and then he stayed. Here's what I think we have in the life of Joash. I think Joash was a failure because he wouldn't fully commit his heart to the Lord. He was a failure because he was uncommitted to the Lord. Can I tell you, listen, we have this funny idea about Christianity. We we view it in tiers and levels, you know. We we think to ourselves, all right, here's just the folks that say it's just born again and that's all. You know, they they just they've been saved, they got saved at BBS 150 years ago, but they don't go to church, they don't serve the Lord, and they're just sort of nominally Christians. They're gonna go to heaven, but that's about it. And then we think, then there's the faithful church folk. You know, I mean, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're at least Sunday morning, some Sunday night, you know, they're there and, and they love the Lord and, and they want to serve the Lord and, and you know, they're, they're, they're good people. You can count on them. They're, they're dependable. Then there's the church all the time people. They're fanatics. Amen. I knew you, I knew you'd do that right there. I knew you'd do that. Them church all the time people. Man, they even go on Wednesdays. What's the matter with them people? Then there's the people even beyond that. You know, they're the ones that are serving. And we think of it in these tiers. And we sort of think, well, I can find a comfortable middle ground somewhere and carry out my life. And I won't be a superstar, but I won't be back of the pack either. I'll be hanging somewhere in the middle of the judgment seat of Christ. And, you know, nobody's really going to notice me or criticize me. Can I tell you what it's really more like? We have a choice about whether we want God to control our lives or not. If we won't let Him have control of our lives, it don't matter what our life looks like externally when we reach the end of it. It's been an abject failure. By the same token, in our life, if we'll fully commit our life to the Lord, we may never win any accolades or recognition as far as humans are, are concerned, but we can be proud when we stand before the Lord knowing that we surrendered our heart and life fully unto Him. You see, here's what it's really about. How committed are we to the Lord? I didn't ask how committed you are to church. I didn't ask how committed you are to ministry. How committed are you to the Lord this morning? Because the reason this man's life failed was not because he had a bad upbringing. There was other kings had wicked upbringings 
and yet lived righteously. And the, the reason that he wound up such a failure was not because he was disadvantaged in some way, didn't have the opportunities that other had. There was one simple reason, and the Holy Ghost puts his divine finger on it in verse number 14, because he's a man when he could have shot every arrow that only shot through. He just wouldn't go full out for the Lord. What ways was he uncommitted in? I want you to notice them this morning, and then I'll be done. Look at verse 14 with me. Now, this is interesting. The Bible says, Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. This is an interesting exchange. Uh, Joash is here hearkening back the words of Elisha himself. Whenever Elisha watched uh, his, we could call mentor, his father in the faith, Elijah, the prophet before him, go to heaven, he, he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he was talking about, uh, he was endearing uh, Elijah with the statement he was making when he was calling him his spiritual father. And he was saying, The chariots of the Lord are, are coming and God is getting ready to take you home. It's a very intimate, personal moment of grief and of love and of affection. Now here's the question I have. Uh, what in the world is Joash doing talking this way? He's a man that has lived a life of consistent wickedness. Now he comes to the deathbed of Elisha, and he's weeping as though Elisha is precious to him. I would say this, number one, this morning. Part of the reason Joash was the failure he was is because he was uncommitted in the matter of forthrightness. Can I tell you why? Because he was a phony person. He comes and weeps at the deathbed of Elisha, but he didn't care nothing about Elisha. You know how we know that? Because he never listened to a word that Elisha said Elisha's entire life. You know what we'd call this? We have a good biblical concept for it. It's the idea of lip service. He wants to come along and weep over the casket. But he didn't give no flowers when that person was still alive. When we compare Joash's life to his actions in this passage, it's obvious that this was all merely theater to him. Here Elisha is God's prophet. He is God's representative. And how Joash treats Elisha in this passage is very revealing about his attitude towards the Lord himself. In Old Testament times, when you when you uh, treated with a prophet, you were dealing with a representative of God. And I'd say this, if he'd treat Elisha that way, he'd treat God that way. Joash was uncommitted to forthrightness and was false in his dealings with the Lord. Our life will be a failure if we won't commit total honesty and forthrightness with the Lord. You know some of our problems? We wouldn't lie to anybody in this room, but we'll lie to God in heaven. That's all right. I'm going to preach. I'm going to eat whether you enjoy this service or not. This day's going to end well for me one way or the other, all right? Part of the problem, we wouldn't tell a lie to anybody in this room, but we'd sure enough lie to the Lord. We'd lie to ourselves. If we won't get honest about our relationship with the Lord, we ain't never going to have any kind of meaningful relationship with the Lord. Let me say, if you're lost today, the first step you getting born again is you getting honest about being lost. My pastor used to say growing up, man, and it's the truth, it ain't hard to get them saved, it's hard to get them lost. In other words, to show them that they are lost and undone and on their way to hell. Now, if you've been living in that condition your whole life and it's never bothered you, it's a hard sell for you to accept that you could be in that much peril and danger and not even care about it. We have a choice. Are we going to take God's word or our word? 
The Word of God is abundantly clear about the matter. You've either been saved, born again, or you've not been saved and born again. One of the two. There's only two categories you can fall in. And if we're unwilling to get honest with the Lord, how can we expect any help? Let me preach it to church folks for a moment. Hey, listen, if you're saved by the grace of God, likewise, your relationship with the Lord is never going to be what it needs to be if you won't get honest with God. The reason he was a failure is he was still play acting. He, he saw this as just an outward show. I mean, that's why he does what he does. He comes and, and weeps and cries over Elisha and makes a big to-do over it. It's because to him, it's all theatrics. It's all play. It's all done for the benefit of other people. If your Christianity is all done for the benefit of other people, I'm sorry. Your Christianity ain't worth a plug nickel. I notice a couple things here. One, he was false in his affection towards Elijah. The Bible says he wept over his face. But I have this question. If he really loved him, wouldn't he have listened to him? If he really loved Elisha, why would he wait until this moment to come to him and to seek his blessing and to shower him with affection? Wouldn't you think if he really loved him, he wouldn't wait till things are about to spin out before he came up to him. Can I say in our relationship with the Lord, if all the subs, if all God is is a ripcord we pull when things are going wrong, then that's our Christianity's about that shallow. I'm not going to tell you you can't be born again and live that way, but I can tell you this, you can't live like a Christian and live that way. You might be saved, you might get yourself to heaven or uh, be uh, taken to heaven by the grace and mercy of God, but I am saying this, that uh, your relationship with God is not going to have the depth and meaning that God intends for it to. And how dare we tell God we love Him when we won't even listen to Him. He was false in his allegiance towards Elisha. Not only that, he was false uh, or in his affection, but he was also false in his allegiance. He says something interesting. He said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now, it's obvious that Joash knows who his biological father is. And when you call someone a, a father or a mother or a sister or a brother that is not your biological uh, relation, then you are trying to communicate a, a, an affection, a, an allegiance, a loyalty, a kinship with that person. Uh, if you were to call somebody your spiritual father, what you're saying is I reverence them, I listen to them, I feed them. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, oh, my father, who's like a daddy to me and I'm like a son to you. But the only problem was he had never lived that way. He had never listened to anything. It reminds me of what the Lord says about Israel in Malachi chapter 1. Do you remember this? Uh, Israel is once again in a state of rebellion. God asks some questions regarding their false religion, uh, their fake, their phony religion that they had. He says in verse number 6 of Malachi chapter 1, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, he says, where is mine honor? And if I be a master... Where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priest that despise my name? And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? And the Lord offers this charge. He says, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? And that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. God asks a very simple, straightforward question. You call me father. Why don't you treat me like one? I'd say in our relationship with the Lord, until we're willing to honestly assess the level of our obedience and allegiance to the Lord, we're always going to be spinning our wheels and just playing trades. We have to be honest about what our life says, not what our lips say. Everything that Joash's lips said were right. He was saying the right thing. The problem is his life didn't back it up. You know, that's true for a lot of us if we were to be real honest. Our lips say one thing. We'll say, oh, I love him so much. But if we were to treat our spouse the way we treat him, they'd leave us. 
We say, oh, I need him so desperately. But then all of a sudden we forget about him between Sunday and Sunday. I'm saying this, we got to get honest about this thing if we want our life to be real for the Lord. He was uncommitted in the matter of forthrightness. Not only that, look at verse 15. This is interesting. The Bible says, And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. I don't know about you. I'll tell you what this reminds me of. I took my little boy squirrel hunting the other day. You ain't from around here. Yes, we hunt squirrels. If you ain't from around here, yes, we eat them if we can ever find them and shoot them. Amen. If you, uh, hey, don't knock it till you've tried it. Somebody say amen to that. I, I took my, well, a little bit with a fuzzy tail. The, uh, the, I, I took my little boy squirrel hunting the other day. But before I took him out, you know, I, we had to go out and, and he had to shoot the gun. He shot a lot of different guns. He ain't never shot a shotgun, you know. So we, we got the old single shot 410 that, that my brother killed his first squirrel with, that I killed my first squirrel with. And we got it out of the gun safe and, and I took him outside. And, and, and here's what I did. I, I'd, I'd show him. I'd say, now, this is the shell. And I'd say, take this shell. He'd take the shell. Say, now put the shell in there. He'd put the shell in there. Say, now we gotta close this. He'd close it. I'd say, now you gotta put it to your shoulder. He'd put it to his shoulder. Say, now you gotta cock the hammer. He'd cock the hammer. I'd say, now you gotta put your finger on the trigger. He'd put his finger on the trigger. I said, now blow away that Milo's tea bottle out there. He, boom! You know? And he, he did. He's a dangerous kid. I mean, he nailed it. But, but there's a similarity here, what I'm saying. Here's what I did. I'm instructing him how to do this. So I give him every minute command and I put my hands on his hands because I'm guiding him and showing him how to shoot. Now stop and think about what it says here. The Bible says, Elisha said unto him, take bows and arrows. And that's what he did. He took bow unto him bow and arrow. And he said to the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. <laughs> In other words, we could say this, that the king puts his hands upon Joash's hands and guides him through every step of this process. He's willing to follow in that situation. And yet the moment the king, or the moment the prophet takes his hands off, what does he immediately do? He deviates from the instructions and begins to do his own thing. Can I say part of the reason this man was a failure is he was uncommitted in forthrightness, but number two, he was uncommitted in the matter of following. I, I noticed that he followed the guiding hands. As long as the prophet of God is willing to force him to place his hands upon him, to tell him every single little specific thing, he's willing to follow. But the moment that he has just a, a, a little space of autonomy, the moment that the, the prophet leaves the pressure, looses the pressure off of him, and now it is his choice what he's going to do, he immediately does the wrong thing. And I say in our lives, one of the things that stunts us so deeply and desperately in our Christianity, we're only willing to follow God when He'll put His hands on us and apply pressure. We'll follow if He makes us. 
But the moment He takes His hands off of us, and I don't mean that in the sense of providence or in the sense of perspective or perception, but I mean in the sense of pressure. The moment He gives us a choice in a matter, we immediately go our own direction. See, here's the problem. He followed the guiding hands, but He faltered with a guarded heart. In other words, He was willing to do when He had to do. But how many of you have ever heard this? Your kids might have said this. You might still say this. I don't know. Anybody ever? You remember being a little kid and somebody tell you to sit down and you'd sit down and you'd be thinking, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. You ever thought that? I still think that. Don't tell my wife that, but I still think that sometimes when she tells me to sit down. But the, the, I'm standing up on the inside. In other words, when I have to, when I'm made to, I'll do it but I'm not going to change my heart about this matter. Man, there's there's just about nothing more that hobbles our growth in the Lord than when we refuse to yield our heart to Him and commit ourselves unto His will. We're willing to follow the guiding hands when God puts His hands on us and forces us this direction or forces us that direction, pushes us this direction. When He speaks clearly and saying, take the bow, we'll take the bow. Uh, open the window, we'll open the window. Shoot, we'll shoot. All right, but the moment that he says, now you know my heart, follow me, we begin to go our own direction. <laughs> the interesting thing here is, is Joash in his own mind develops a, a portion of these commandments. He adds to it. He, he, he uh, remember that uh, Elisha never tells him how many arrows to shoot. And he assumes that he can shoot as many as he wants instead of shooting as many as he can. Here's what he does. He begins to lean unto his own understanding and to go his own direction, do his own thing. There's a reason the Bible says that we're not to trust in our heart. We're not to lean under our own understanding. We're to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We're not to lean upon ourselves. We're to seek His will, seek His wisdom, seek His mind. You know the proper thing for Joash to have done if he had questions was turn around and look at Elisha and say, how many times? Elisha would have said, shoot till you ain't got no more arrows. That's how many times. But instead he said, I'm just going to take this upon myself and make this decision. We get in a mess in our life when instead of committing ourselves to the Lord, we begin to live our own life in our own direction. And instead of when we've got a question, going to the Lord and saying, Now, Lord, I don't know what to do about this. We say, It's all right, Lord. I got this. I'll figure it out. You see, he never would really commit to fully following the Lord. Surely, Joash, as a young man, was a part of this religious spiritual fervor in the land that turned back to God, that called unto God. He had the choice. He had the option. Other kings had grown up with scoundrels for fathers, but had grown up to be righteous men. But when he had the choice of going all in and following God, he just wouldn't do it. And here in this little episode, in our text, we have just a little example of what is a fundamental problem in his life. When God made him, he'd do it. But the moment that God wasn't making him, he'd go his own direction. You're going to find your life a series of spiritual setbacks if that is your philosophy. Let's notice one more thing and we'll be done this morning. Look down at verse number 19. Whenever uh, he does this, in fact, let's go back to verse 18 and we'll read for it. It says, and he said, take the arrows and he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. The man of God was wroth with him. And said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. Have you ever stopped and thought about why he did what he did? What are the decisions? What are the considerations that informed his choices? 
Uh, he could have shot the, the quiver empty, but instead he just shoots three times and, and then he stops. And it becomes apparent that what he's doing is he is indulging and patronizing this old dying prophet. He's doing this because he's been asked to, but he really sees no benefit in it. If he really believed that every time one of those arrows smacked the ground, that that was going to be a battle that would be won. Some of his men that would not perish. Uh, some some mothers that wouldn't lose sons. Some wives that wouldn't lose husbands. Then you better believe he would have shot every arrow and been asking people to find more. I'll tell you why he did this. Because he really didn't believe it. If he believed that those arrows translated to victories on the battlefield, then he would have shot every arrow he could. But he just simply didn't believe that was the case. He thought, I'm indulging this old man and nothing else. You know, he was uncommitted in forthrightness. He wouldn't be straight with the Lord. He wouldn't be straight with himself about his condition. He was uncommitted in the matter of following. He'd follow if he was made to, but the moment he had a choice, he'd go his own direction. But then I would say this, he was uncommitted in the matter of faith. He just wouldn't believe what the prophet of God had said. He wouldn't take the prophet at his word. He was unwilling to trust the word of God. We see the proof of his lacking faith, and it's pretty apparent if he believed it worked, he would have shot more arrows. By the way that Elisha says, thou should have shot five or six times, that implies that Elisha, having handled the bow and arrows, that he knew how many arrows were in the quiver. He wouldn't have scolded him if there had only been three arrows. There must have been more. And he says, why did you do that? I told you this meant battles. I told you this meant lives saved. Why would you just shoot three and stop? You know the difference? You know why Elisha was upset? Can I, can I preach as a pastor for two seconds here? And then I'm going to get back to it. You know why sometimes a pastor gets upset when they see people making heartbreaking decisions? Because we really, really believe that if you go astray from the Lord, it's going to mean destruction in your life. I'm sure it would have been very tempting for Joe Ash to look at Elisha and smile and say, my father, just settle down. Don't, don't upset yourself. It's not a big deal. Like so many young people of my generation, the generation before me, generations past, undoubtedly generations to come, will look at those who are warning them of spiritual perils. Settle, listen, settle down. It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. It's not a big deal. If you were to fast forward a few years, it became a big deal in Israel. And I've found that in my life, there's things I should have listened to. But at the time, I just tut tutted it. I just, oh, it's no big deal. But you fast forward a few years and it turns out it's a real big deal. I'm saying sometimes the people in your life that are, that, that are, you feel like they're walking contrary to your will and your wishes, you know why they're doing that? Because they see danger ahead and it breaks their heart and they know it'll destroy your life. Joash, very simply, how do we know he didn't believe it? Because he would have shot more arrows. How do we know in our life how much faith we have? It's directly proportional to how willing we are to commit to the Lord fully to obey Him and live for Him. I understand we can't all serve in the same capacity. I understand there may be things that people do they serve and it's a more visible capacity. But every one of us can commit our heart fully to the Lord. And if we really believe all those things we say about Him, don't you imagine we do that? I see the proof of His lacking faith. Look down verse 22. This is a little past our text, but, but notice what it says in verse 22. But Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. And the Lord was gracious unto them. Talking about Israel, was gracious unto them and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence 
as yet. I would say we see the proof of his lacking faith, but number two, we see the potential of living faith. Can I just make a very simple statement and move on? Somebody said, I wish you would preach. I've never seen you do it. A very simple statement and move on. The reason that they failed in the day of battle was not because God was not willing to keep his end of the promise. You notice it uses the term covenant, and it is a covenant. And the covenant that was made regarding the nation of Israel was a conditional one in the sense of God would bless and favor them if they would follow Him. If He had been willing to follow the Lord, God would have kept up His end of it. In fact, God did keep up His end of it. And the whole time that Israel is sliding down this road of destruction, God has compassion on them. God has mercy on them. God has respect on them. God's doing everything He can. You see, here was the missing component. It's not that Joash had an an unfortunate life. It's not that he had a bad upbringing. It's not that he had less opportunities than others. There was one thing missing in his life. God was willing to fully commit to him, but he wasn't willing to fully commit to God. Now look at Calvary and tell me whether God's fully committed to you. And then look at your Christianity and ask yourself if you're fully committed to Him. I see the potential of living faith. And then I see the price of lackluster faith. Verse 24 says this, So Hazael, king of Syria, died. Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his stead. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. Now, I don't have the time to do it, really to give you the full picture of what the consequences were of Joash's decision to not commit to the Lord in firing those arrows. You'd have to really do a sweeping overview of every moment that Syria interacts after this day with Israel or Judah. But you can go through and catalog. You know what you'll find? There were untold thousands, tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of lives that were cost because this man wasn't willing to shoot every arrow. If he had done it, he would have destroyed, obliterated Syria entirely. But instead, because he just he just won't commit, he's willing to go a little ways. But this whole thing of giving his whole life to the Lord, he's just not willing to do that. And you know what? He gives half his life to the Lord, or maybe less than that. And so the lives of many others are given to the enemy. I would say in your life and mine, we have no idea what could be the devastating effect of us just being sort of lackluster. Half in, half out. Yeah, I love the Lord, right? I love the Lord. I mean, I don't love Him more than this. I don't love Him more than my job. I don't love Him more than my hobbies. I don't don't love Him more than whatever it might be. But, I mean, he, you know, I love Him. He's precious to me. That kind of uncommittedness in our life, you know what it can result in is destruction for us, heartache for us, and the destruction of the lives of others. I'm saying this, there's a real cost to going halfway for the Lord. Instead, you know what we should do? We should commit ourselves fully unto Him. We should say, Lord, I'll be 100% honest with you today and honest with myself. If my life's not where it needs to be, I'm not going to hedge. I'm not going to deflect. I'm not going to pretend as though that's not the case. Lord, if my life's not right with me, I'll admit that to you. I'll admit it to me, and I'm willing to get it right. And Lord, wherever you lead me, I'll follow you. And I won't make you lead me about with bit and bridle, like a mule, like a donkey, like a horse. Lord, I'm going to look for where your eye goes, like the psalmist talked about. Wherever your heart is, wherever you set your heart on, God, whatever you love, that's what I'm going to love. And I'm going to follow you without making you drag me or push me. And Lord, I'm willing to trust you. Whatever you say in my life, I'm willing to put my faith in you and trust that you know what's best and you have what's best at heart. If we'll go all in on the Lord, we'll find that our life 
and be a wonderful testimony to His grace and mercy. A joyful thing. I'm not saying you won't be touched with sorrow at times, but you'll have the very help and strength of God day by day. Or if we say, well, I'm going to pull up short. I'm only going to shoot three arrows. Instead, we'll find our life a discouragement, a disappointment, and a failure. The choice is ours this morning. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open already. You don't have to wait for a note to be played. If God touched your heart, you can slip out. Some are doing that now. And you can meet the Lord in this altar. Come and talk with Him. There's nothing magical about the altar, but it's a precious place to meet Him. It's a precious place to do business with the Lord. What about you this morning? Are you 100% in? I'm not talking about whether you're saved or not. Now, if you're not saved, you're not even, you're, you're not even any bit committed to Him. But He's committed to you. He sent His Son to Calvary to die in your place to save you from your sins. He's waiting on you. He's committed to you. Will you commit your eternal soul to Him? Would you say, Lord, I can't save me, but I'm willing to let you save me. I'm going to give my heart to you. If you'll do that, He'll save you this morning. But even to those that know the Lord, that are saved by His grace, are you 100% committed to Him? Or are you just sort of half in in your commitment and half out? I hope that you'll be all in this morning. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.